Jeremiah 19 this evening. And as I mentioned before, we may, I actually hope we'll, we'll, we'll carry the momentum into chapter 20. The Lord, I think, and I always have to be careful when I say this, but I think that the Lord is, has put on my heart to pick up the pace just a little bit in Jeremiah with the goal of wrapping up by summertime. The last several summers, we've done something different, and we've done different things in different summers. Um, but I think as I was praying actually about something different altogether, the Lord impressed upon my heart. Let's, let's not interrupt Jeremiah again. We've interrupted Jeremiah a couple times already. Let's, let's push through to the end, and then we'll see what the Lord has for the summer. So pray, pray with me for, for clarity on that, even week over week. Um, I just don't want to pin my ears back and, and go for broke. There are some, some natural breaks, some natural uh, delineations between Jeremiah's sermons. Some of them are kind of long, so I need the Lord's wisdom for all of this. But Jeremiah 19, we've got another one of the object lessons that God gives Jeremiah to use at various points in his 40-year ministry. Object lessons, symbolic actions that the Lord uses to convey truth, to impart meaning to Judah. We saw one in chapter 15, stick burned on both ends. We saw another one in chapter 13, the, the soiled linen undergarment. And both of those had the same meaning, if you recall. Both of those illustrated vividly, they, they, they were a picture of how Judah was spoiled was degraded, was, was damaged beyond repair, not useful to God, not useful to the world because Judah had ceased to point people to God. And so Judah had become less than useful beyond repair, at least in its current state. Of course, we know how the story ends. God's not done with Judah. But at this point, only God can turn Judah around. Well, this evening's object lesson carries forward a theme from last week. Last week, Jeremiah went down to visit the potter in the pottery shop. This week's lesson also involves a potter and clay. Um, different message, but a similar kind of illustration. Let's dive in. The, thus says the Lord, chapter 19, verse 1. Go, and get a potter's earthen flask. But don't go alone. Take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I will tell you. So last week, Jeremiah went to visit the potter. This week, go back. Last week, it was just, hey, go watch pottery being made. This week, go buy one of the pieces that that guy makes, a flask, a jar, a bottle, it's, it's rendered differently in different translations. But go buy a, 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 a pottery container. But don't go alone. Bring, bring some witnesses. We, we want them to, to be part of what happens next. Bring some elders of the people. So that would be civic leaders. And then elders of the priests, the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders. So God wants representation in all spheres of, of Judah's life to be a part of this. And then, continuing from verse 2, once you have the, the jar and, the, and those leaders, go down to the valley of Hinnom. Go to the Potsherd Gate. Now, 
we're not sure exactly which gate this is. Most commentators, if they have a guess, they think it's the dung gate, which is attractively but accurately labeled. It's the place where dung and other refuse from the temple um, were taken and dumped outside of the city into the Valley of Hinnom. Valley of Hinnom, we might recognize by another name. It was also known as the Valley of Gehenna. And Gehenna became popularly known or commonly known in, in Judah's parlance as, as a synonym for hell. Why? Because it's the place where there was just an ongoing burn of the dung and the garbage, the refuse from the city of Judah. And apparently, based on what we just read and some other clues, it was also the place where broken pottery was dumped because it wasn't useful anymore. It's not the first time in Jeremiah that we've read of the Valley of Hinnom. If you go back just a couple chapters, go back to chapter 7 for a moment. In Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 30, God says, The children of Judah have done evil in my sight. They've set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to pollute it. They've built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. The valley of Hinnom was a place of uh, Baal worship, including worship that involved child sacrifice. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, will, will no more be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they'll bury in Tophet until there's no room. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. So there's an association that God has already established between the location that he's calling Jeremiah to make this demonstration. The location where he said, hey, get, a, get an earthen jar and bring along civic and religious leaders. There's a significance to the location. It's a location where Judah previously carried out child sacrifice. Okay, get a jar, get the leaders, go to a place, then what? Then, back to chapter 18, verse 3, then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, wrong chapter, and uh, proclaim the words which I will tell you, and say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'll bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. Now, obviously, the kings aren't there. The expectation is that the leaders who are there, the leaders that Jeremiah brings there, will bring word back. Word of coming judgment. Word of destruction. Word of devastation. Why? Verse 4, because they've forsaken me and made this an alien place because they've burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and they've filled this place with the blood of the innocents. They've also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. Instead of exporting worship of the true and living God to the nations, which was Israel's commission, that was their mandate. That was why they existed. Instead of exporting worship of the true and living God, they imported false worship. They imported worship of foreign gods to Judah, worship that involved child sacrifice. 
Notice the similarity, the resonance between what we just read and what we read back in chapter 7. So that's the reason for the impending judgment. And God seems keen to make sure that all of the leaders of Judah are aware of the reason. That's the reason for the judgment. What will the judgment be? Verse 6, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Tophet, okay, this sounds familiar, or the valley of the son of Himmon, but the valley of slaughter. And I'll make void the counsel of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I'll call them, cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies, and by the hands of those who seek their lives, their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. I will make this city desolate and a hissing. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss because of all of its plagues. And I'll cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege, and the desperation with which the enemies and those who seek their lives drive them to despair. So that's graphic. <laughs> but, but we understand what God is saying. There's sort of a, 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 a tragic justice to it. He's saying the place that you worshipped a false god with human sacrifice is going to be the place where your people fall by the sword and where their flesh is eaten by birds and animals and inside the walls while the siege is going on, people will resort to cannibalism. Which is what God said would happen centuries earlier. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, also in Leviticus 26, but I'll read from Deuteronomy 28. God said to Moses... If you disobey, if you go your own way, and you do it long enough, and you refuse correction, Deuteronomy 28.53, you will eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. And, and, and goes on to, to elaborate on that. Lamentations 4 verse 10 tells us that that did indeed happen with graphic language, and we'll just leave it until we get to it. Once will be enough, unless you want to track it down on your own. But in the days of Moses, God said that will be the, the end of your rebellion. That will be where your rebellion leads. Lamentations 4.10 confirms that that indeed did happen. So having said all of that, back to Jeremiah 19. Having said all of that, Jeremiah drives the point home even harder. Verse 10, okay, when you're done saying that, God says, then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you. Glance back to verse 7, where Jeremiah says, speaking for God, that, that he's going to make void the counsel of Judah and Jerusalem. The NIV renders that, I'll ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. What we miss in both of those, in the, in the English, there's a play on words in the Hebrew. The, the root of the word that's translated ruin or make void is the same root as jar or flask. So what's going on here is a graphic illustration, a real-time demonstration for these leaders of what God is talking about through Jeremiah. He's going to smash the jar and, 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 and in doing so is, in effect, saying all of your plans, all of your ideas, all of your counsel to one another, bam, they're going to be shattered. 
And, and no amount of superglue is going to put it back together. Which, even if we didn't pick up on the wordplay, God conveniently elaborates for us. Verse 11, Say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, Even so I will break this people in this city as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them in Tophet till there is no place to bury. Thus I will do to this place, says the Lord, and its inhabitants, and make the city like Tophet. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the place of Tophet, because of all the houses on whose roofs they've burned incense to all the host of heaven and poured out drink offerings to other gods. There's going to be nothing left for you to do except bury your dead. I'm going to smash your plans. I'm going to lay waste to all of your good ideas. When I'm done, everything's going to be beyond repair. All the king's horses and all the king's man territory. There'll be nothing left to do except bury your dead. And when you run out of room, the bodies are going to pile up in Jerusalem. The whole city will become unclean because there won't be enough room to bury them in the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Gehenna. Now, because it's Wednesday night and we like to have a little fun, there might be something deeper going on here. A few years ago, when we were going through the life of Christ together, the, one of the, the gold standard commentaries on, on the life of Christ, studying it chronologically, is Alfred Adersheim, who wrote in the 19th century. He makes an interesting observation that Arnold Fruchtenbaum also picks up on, but I think he's leaning on Edersheim. The invasion by Babylon in 586 BC was, was devastating and catastrophic, but it didn't really result in the mass grave sites being described here. Now, we know that every prophecy in Scripture that's fulfilled is fulfilled literally. So that has us wondering where could this be Fulfilled. Is there a longer-term fulfillment possibly in play here? Adersheim suggests flip over to Matthew 27. And in Matthew 27, we read about Judas's endgame. Judas brought back the 30 pieces of silver that he'd received for betraying Jesus, threw them on the temple or the floor, goes and hangs himself. Matthew 27, verse 6, the chief priest took the silver and said it's not lawful to put it in the treasury because it's blood money. They consulted together, they consulted together, and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of them, who was priced whom they gave of the children of Israel price and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, if, if you remember from our study together, or maybe you just know from studying this on your own, that's a problematic passage. Because Matthew says, verse 9, thus was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, and goes on to quote from Zechariah. What's up with that? It could be a copyist error. It could be, and I think this is maybe what we talked about when we went through it together, it could be that Jeremiah was the first of the prophets on that particular scroll, and so Matthew was referring to the scroll that begins with Jeremiah that later has those words, 
And I mean, those are both plausible, but what if there's something else? Edersheim suggests, what if Matthew really was referencing Jeremiah? He quotes Zechariah, but what he's intending to convey was that Zechariah's prophecy in 505 BC or so was built on what God had previously said through Jeremiah about ruining all of their plans. And yeah, short term, that could be the Babylonian invasion, but what if there was more to it? Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. They can't put it in the treasury. It's blood money. They go out and buy a field of blood in the valley of Hinnom. And as Matthew's point in bringing this up, when Jerusalem's uh, scribes and priests, when they bought the property in the valley of Hinnom, they also bought into the fulfillment of this prophecy. Because when Rome invaded in 70 AD, there wasn't enough room to bury all of the dead in the valley. A little speculative, but that's how we roll on Wednesday nights. Back to Jeremiah, verse 14. Jeremiah came from Tophet, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all of the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on this city and on all of her towns, all of the surrounding towns, all of the doom that I've pronounced against it, because they've stiffened their necks that they may not hear my words. We've switched to the third person here, which suggests somebody other than Jeremiah is recording this. Maybe his scribe Baruch, who shows up in later chapters, maybe someone else. Maybe Jeremiah decided to speak of himself in the third person. We're not sure. Whoever wrote it down made the message clear. It's essentially the same message that, that Jeremiah gave back in the valley. He's just now speaking it in the temple courtyard so that everyone will hear. God doesn't want anybody to miss this. And preaching that in the courtyard got the attention of one person in particular. When Pashur, the son of Emmer, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things, we're in chapter 20, verse 1, then Pashur struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. Pashur's a common name. We, we see it a bunch in Nehemiah and Ezra, um, which tells us it was also a common priestly name. So we don't know who this is, but we know what his role is. He was the chief governor, the chief officer. Think sergeant at arms for the temple. He's responsible for keeping the peace in and around the temple, the temple, the courtyards, the surrounding area. Now, depending upon when this happened chronologically, this could be after... Jeremiah was forbidden to preach in the temple. Or it could be that he was just making a ruckus and they didn't like what he had to say. One way or another, Pasher deemed that Jeremiah was disturbing the peace and disrupting the, the, the order of things. And so he orders him, he struck Jeremiah the, the prophet. That, that, that could mean that he ordered him beaten. It probably was more than just one sharp one across the mouth and put them in the stocks. We think stocks when we go to, you know, uh, uh, Wild West kinds of places, and, and it's the photo thing. You stick your neck and your hands through it and make funny faces. Stocks in Jeremiah's day generally involved what we've 
colloquially referred to as enhanced interrogation. It was probably strapping his body either to, to something that stretched him unnaturally or confined him unnaturally. This was very, very, very painful, whatever it was. But the next day he's released. It happened on the next day that Pastor brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then Jeremiah said to him, The Lord has not called your name Pasher, but Magor Misabib. Say that five times fast. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I'll make you a terror to yourself and to all of your friends. Magor Misabib literally means terror on every side or terror all around. And the term's actually been used by Jeremiah before. He used it in chapter 6, verse 25 to reference the Babylonians, not by name, but but the force, the enemy that's going to come from the north was referred to as, as terror all around. And he uses it in chapter 20, chapter 46, chapter 49, Lamentations 2. What is he saying? Back to verse 4. I will give Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword. Moreover, I'll deliver all of the wealth of the city, all of its produce, all of its precious things, all of the treasures of the kings of Judah. I will give it into the hands of their enemies, who will plunder them, seize them, and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die. And be buried there, and you and all your friends to whom you've prophesied lies. Short version. Hey, guess what, Pasher? You get to be the next object lesson. We're done with clay. It's going to be you. Your life, your fate will mirror, will personify what's going to happen to the greater city. And in fact, we've, we've got reason to, to believe that, that Pasher's fate did precede the ultimate fall of Judah. We know that there were three waves of deportation culminating in 586 B.C. Pasher probably was, was seized and deported later to die in Babylon in 597. Why do we think that? Because by the time we get to Jeremiah 29 and the vivid description of what happens in 586, the person in Pasher's job, the chief officer, the chief governor, was named Zephaniah. So Pasher was probably uh, removed in the same deportation that, that took Ezekiel. Here's another reason this passage is interesting. It's the first time we, we hear Babylon called by name. It's been referred to as, as this, this mysterious enemy uh, of the north and, and, and the terror all around. But here for the first time, God names the enemy Babylon. But back to real time. Pasher's still alive, releases Jeremiah after torturing him. Jeremiah speaks prophetic judgment over Pasher, saying, okay, you're going to be a picture of what happens to, to Jerusalem and, and Judah more broadly. At the end of that, at the end of, of, of speaking this prophetic judgment over Pasher, verse 7, Jeremiah cries out to the Lord again. Oh, Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded you're stronger than I and have prevailed. I'm in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. We've seen Jeremiah do this a few times, right? And this is another one of those times. But it's the strongest language so far, as, as you'll see when we get deeper into it. In fact, it's the strongest language he uses ever. Some commentators call this Jeremiah's Gethsemane. 
where his soul is, is really up against it. I'm in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. God, this isn't my idea. You sucked me into this. Sucked me, seduced me, strong-armed me. You pulled me. This, you made me do this. And look to where it's gotten me. Everybody makes fun of me wherever I go. Wherever I preach, mock and ridicule, I'm a laughingstock. But what choice do I have? He goes on to say, not preaching isn't any better. Verse 9, then I said, well, I won't make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. I hold my breath until I turn blue. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shot up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. Apparently, at some point, Jeremiah decided, I'm not going to preach anymore because I don't like what happens when I do. But the effort to, to not preach the words God gave him tore him apart. A, a, a few years ago, we had a, a guest worship team uh, bring in the song, uh, I think it's Hillsong, I don't know, but it set a fire down in my soul that I can't contain, that I can't control. And I said, oh, let's, let's not do that again. Because the idea of being out of control seems contrary to Scripture. The spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. But, but here, going back and reading that, the source idea in context, that's what Jeremiah is saying. Is he's like, I couldn't not preach the word that God gave me. It burned within me. I, 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 had, to, I had to let it out. So what Jeremiah, but what Jeremiah is saying is, look, this is a catch-22. There's no win here. If I don't speak, it's agony. If I do speak, it's, it's humiliation. Verse 10, for I heard mocking. Fear on every side. Report, they say, and we'll report it. All my acquaintances watch for my stumbling, saying perhaps he can be induced. Then we'll prevail against him and we'll take our revenge on him. Other translations, instead of acquaintances, actually call, call these people friends. With friends like this, who needs enemies? What they're saying is, Jeremiah, you're Mr. Terror all around. You keep talking about terror. You keep talking about judgment. Everything you have to say is negative. You're a bummer to be around, man, and we're tired of hearing it. Now, what they say afterwards could be taken to mean, we're, we're, we're just whatever you say, we're not going to believe you. We've made up our mind about you. The way the New King James translates also seems to suggest, okay, we got to shut this guy up, and if we listen, maybe we can catch him in something that we can use against him. Like Jesus' enemies waited for him to say something that would be a violation of the law that they could use to, to justify stoning him. So, so Jeremiah is lamenting pretty good here. But then, all of a sudden, verse 11, he swings the other way. But the Lord is with me as a mighty awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They'll be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. Okay, what, what just happened? You were in the pit of despair, and then and now you're, you're, it, it's like David in some of the Psalms, right? goes all the way to the bottom until there's nowhere to go but back up. He, he, he laments all, all the way to rock bottom, and, and, and then he says, okay, well, I, I guess I need to pray my way back. Some commentators look at this and, and, and say, no, he, he, must have, he must have just put his pen down and walked away and come back 
days, weeks later and thought the better of it. I don't know. We don't say that about David. And, and I think most of us here have probably had long nights of the soul where, where things are black and things are black and things are black and then, and then suddenly the Lord bursts in. It's impossible to know exactly how this was put together. But we know that he comes to, to a better perspective. We know, verse 11, that Jeremiah gets back to, okay, God is God, and these so-called friends of mine are not God, and I know who's going to prevail. Verse 12, but O Lord of hosts, oh, just, you were doing so well. <laughs> but O Lord of hosts, you who touch, touch the righteous and see the mind of heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For I've pleaded my cause before you. He doesn't have everything figured out. He's still talking about vengeance. But he's still confident that God is going to show himself strong on behalf of the righteous, so that's not nothing. Verse 13, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he's delivered the life of the poor from the hands of the evildoers. There you go, Jeremiah. You're, you're even in the prophetic past tense. You're talking about God's coming justice and judgment as if it's already happened. There you go. Curse be the day in which I was born. Ah. <laughs> Somebody medicate this guy. <laughs> it, I mean, and, and, and all of a sudden he's, he's, he's got Job vibes. Curse be the day in which I was born. Let, not, let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father, saying, a male child has been born to you. If you want to track it down, Job 3, the beginning of Job chapter 3, reads very much like this. Job saying, it would have been better, much better, much better indeed, if I had never been born and to suffer what I'm suffering. And, and, and that's, that's where Jeremiah is going. He can't curse his parents. Cursing your parents was, was way, way out of bounds under Mosaic law. So he's doing the next best thing. He's cursing the man who brought the news to his father that his father was a father, that a child had been born. <laughs> and let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent. The guy who told my father that I was born, let him be like Sodom and Gomorrah, is what he just said. Let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noon because he did not kill me from the womb that my mother might have been my grave and her womb always enlarged with me. Why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow that my days should be consumed with shame? Not Ezekiel, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Solomon goes there as well. And I've had these passages quoted to me in defense of abortion. Maybe you've encountered this argument. You see, the Bible says that for some people, it would be better for them to never be born. Jeremiah just said that. The Bible doesn't say that. God doesn't say that. The Bible says that sometimes we feel that way. Sometimes we get in our feel. Sometimes we get feeling sorry for ourselves. And yes, yeah, sometimes we wish that we hadn't been born. And Jeremiah has had a few rounds of this. And this is, this is the deepest, darkest, blackest of, of all of them over the last decade or more of ministry. He's gotten deeper and deeper every time he goes before the Lord in, in this lamentation. Why this, Lord? Why me, Lord? Why here, Lord? Why, why, Lord? 
What's interesting, though, is that after this, he stops. One of the reasons that this is called Jeremiah's Gethsemane is, is that this is the, the ultimate. You know, Lord, if, 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 there, if there be another way, let this cup pass before me kind of a thing. But after this, he stops. The persecution continues. When we get to chapter 37, he's going to be imprisoned. Chapter 38, he's going to be lowered into a well. Chapter 39, he's going to watch Jerusalem fall. Chapter 43, he's going to be dragged against his will into exile in, in Egypt. Bad stuff keeps happening, but we never hear this kind of complaint from him again. God told Jeremiah all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18, I'm going to make you like a fortified city, like an iron pillar, like bronze walls. It's taken a little while. But it seems like on the other side of, of this pity party, he actually gets there. He, he, he stares at the choice that we all have. Do I want to get bitter? Do I want to get better? And eventually, not right away, not the first time, but eventually he says, I'm going to go with better. It was touch and go for a while. Could have gone either way, but eventually he makes a choice. Just like eventually every one of us has to make a choice. Paul Tripp's got a book on, I can't remember the, the, the title of it, but he's got a book about middle age. And one of the quotes that I remember from the book is he says, middle age is where dreams go to die. And I don't remember if that was his line or if he was quoting someone. But there's a certain amount of truth to it. And, and, and I mean, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a caricature. It's sort of a trope of, of middle age, right? Some people get there a lot sooner. For some people, they, they hold it off until later. But, but every one of us hits a crossroads in life where we realize the life we're living isn't exactly the one that we planned. The, 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 the path that we're walking isn't the one that we hoped for. Isn't even the one that we thought that we decided on. What happens then? A couple weeks ago, we were in Ephesians. Uh, well... For the last several weeks, we've been a couple weeks ago. We were in Ephesians chapter two, and we looked at verse ten, and we read about the good works that God has prepared beforehand for each of us, for each of us to walk in. So, what happens when we're like Jeremiah, and the path that God has for us isn't the one that we wanted? It's not the ministry that I wanted. That's not that's not the good work that I desired. My life, my family, my ministry, this is not playing out the way that we talked about, Lord. God says, well, it's playing out the way that I talked about. <laughs> a lot of times when we realize there's a gap between what we thought we wanted and what God wanted for us, we do what Jeremiah did. We kick and scream and stomp our feet. We act out. Spend money. Sin, sin. Run away. But what do we do when the money runs out? What do we do when our, when our legs give out after all the running? What do we do when sin stops even pretending to fulfill us? The same choice is still there. Follow the Lord? 
or keep fighting? Abide, obey, or keep pounding on the table? Read chapter 20. Comment, it's, fun, it's, it's funny to read commentators trying to figure out what to do with chapter 20, these violent mood swings. And the really strong language. His highs are really high and his lows are way, way down there, aren't they? you got dramatic emotion and dramatic language in both directions. And, 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 and you can almost see some of these guys tearing out their hair. I don't know, I don't know what to do with this. this <laughs> I don't think it's hard. Maybe, maybe I'm oversimplistic, but I, I, I think it's a battle between spirit and flesh. And I don't think we have to analyze it any more than that. There's God's call on our life, and there's our plans for our life. And when they aren't the same, we've got three options. Obey and gripe about it, which is what Jeremiah has been doing up till now. Disobey and be miserable through it, which, which he apparently tried. Or abide. And sometime on the other side of chapter 20, apparently, Jeremiah decides to abide. When we get together this weekend, this Sunday, the end of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays for the people that he's writing to. And he prays a prayer that I think is, is very much fitting for where Jeremiah is at, because Paul prays, oh, that you would understand the love that God has for you and how much higher his ways are and how much deeper his love is and how much better it is to follow him than anything else. And even without the benefit of Paul's words, I think Jeremiah, I think that idea crystallized in his heart and allowed him to continue and do the ministry that we're going to read about in these coming weeks. Lord, we pray that that, that idea, that concept would crystallize in our hearts as we look at the gap between our wishes, our hopes, our dreams, and your plans and your purposes. Lord, we're grateful that, that you have grace for us as we, as we toggle back and forth, as we swing from high highs to low lows and back again. But Lord, we pray your spirit would, would draw us steadily, graciously, patiently, unceasingly towards the road that you picked out because it's a safer road, it's a better road. It might be a harder road. It almost certainly is a harder road. It's a road that will need you every step of the way. We'll need your encouragement, your still small voice, your steadfast word, the wise counsel of brothers and sisters. But on your road, we have those things, Lord. And with those things, your joy. And with those things, your peace. And when we taste it, Lord, I'll sour everything else to us. Make the world bitter in our mouths, ugly in our eyes.
that our desire would be for you and our desire for you would grow. We ask in your merciful, gracious name.